0: We're returning back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and um, as you're doing so, let me just encourage you, those of you who are, uh, have signed up and, and have committed to praying the prayer covenant for yourself and at least one other person, let me encourage you not to give up. Uh, and let me also say, it's not too late to still you know, fill out one of the, the cards and let me know that you're, you're praying the prayer covenant uh, for yourself and at least one other person. If you are watching online, and some of you have done this, um, email me. Just let me know that you have entered into the prayer covenant and you're committed to to praying it for 40 days, and uh, and I can be praying for you then as well. Um, you know, so often we think of prayer as something, you know, that changes things. That's why we pray. We have a list of needs. We have a list of petitions that we need God to, um, uh, to intervene uh, with, and but sometimes the greatest impact of prayer is what it does to us. As we're engaging and wrestling with the Lord in prayer, as the Spirit brings things into our hearts um, to pray for, sometimes the Spirit brings things into our hearts that just suddenly click in about myself or or a message that the Lord has for me. Um, And so prayer is not just about changing things. It may be more about changing me as we pray. And so let me encourage you, uh, do not give up. Do not lose heart. Um, It is worth it. You will reap a harvest. Now, as we we come, uh, we return to 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul's working through now this fairly high-level discussion concerning the glory of the covenant. Okay, so that's really the topic here. It is the glory of covenants um, because he is comparing and contrasting the old covenant, that is the law given to the Israelites under Moses. He's comparing and contrasting this with the new covenant, that we are, um, as believers and followers of Jesus, that we are privileged to become members of And Paul appears to be addressing and bringing clarification to the issue of covenants because in the background, there are these false apostles or, or these false teachers who are teaching that faith in Jesus is not enough. They're saying that in order to gain God's full acceptance, the Corinthians need to follow Torah. That is, they need to... To also reengage with many of the ceremonies and, and the practices that were required under uh, the old covenant. And this goes beyond just the moral part of the law summarized in the Ten Commandments. This includes the ceremonial requirements of being circumcised, following the dietary laws, uh, which made a distinction between clean and unclean foods, celebrating Jewish feast days, being careful not to eat with uncircumcised Gentiles, and so forth. So, um, these false teachers a- a- appear to, have, you know, we-, we often categorize them as Judaizers because they're, they're in a certain sense, wanting to, re- um, uh, they're requiring of Christians that, in a sense, they first become Jewish before they can be fully accepted by God in Christ. And so, all the- so what Paul is doing to the end of chapter 3 is he's comparing, he's contrasting uh, the new covenant arrangement uh, with the old. He wants his readers to see that the Old Covenant was never meant to be a permanent arrangement and that it was, in many respects, quite limited. And through the Old Covenant, though it was glorious in its own right, it pales in comparison with the glory of the New Covenant. So I'll just say a couple things. This is a difficult topic. So don't expect that you you, kind of get it, you know, as we just work through this. This is something you're going to want to really ponder over time. You want to ponder the nature of of covenant in general. And and the difficult um, question is how it's working um, throughout scriptures and how covenants work. And um, are they all the same? Or are there differences and distinctions? And if so, what are those differences? And how does the covenant work with New with New Testament believers, with uh, Christians, and, and uh, fo- with followers of Jesus in this church age, these are all very difficult questions. So, if you kind of come away feeling like this is confusing to me, well, <laughs> you you want to see this as an introduction, and you want to continue to ponder it, because what the Bible does um, tell us is that it's worth thinking, it's worth appreciating, and understanding. And sometimes the application is, you know, do this. Um, Very practical to-do list of things that you can um, practice in your daily life. In a passage like this, I think what God wants us to, to begin to enter into is simply to understand with the mind and with the heart and to appreciate the glory of the new covenant. So this is where the application at least starts. And I think God just really wants us to understand what covenant is about. So that's where we're going. We're talking about the glory, especially of the new covenant in comparison to the old. Would you stand for the reading of and hearing of God's word? This is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 11. Paul writes, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. (laughs) Let's pray. Almighty God, grant us, we pray. Lord, ears to hear. Hearts that understand that we would, Lord, by your Spirit, you would enlighten our minds, that you would kindle our hearts, that you would increase our faith as our steps are directed by your Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray for your illumination into your word. We pray it for the sake of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So again, what Paul is doing is he is he's wanting to demonstrate the glory of the new covenant because he is an apostle of the new covenant. And again, in the background are these false teachers arguing in a certain way that, you know, the believers need to go back and and start practicing uh, the old covenant in order to be fully accepted by God. And so that's what gives rise um, to this text. And I'll just um, let you know in advance, I'm only going to get to the first two points on your outline. So if you need to go beyond the third point, feel free, um, because I'm going to wait till next week. So this is part one, we'll put it that way. Um, And and then we'll finish the the chapter uh, next week. But Paul begins by, again, taking up the idea of covenants. Um, In this passage, Paul shows us that both old and new covenants were filled with the glory of God. There's something glorious about covenants, uh, especially these, these covenants that have been uh, entered into uh, with God and have been arranged by God. Um, and his basic principle here is, even though the old the old covenant had glory attached to it, as we'll see, um, but the new covenant is so surpassingly more glorious. And this is something, you know, <laughs> We think about where our minds are through the week, where where our minds are on paying bills, it's on deadlines, it's on, you know, the world of entertainment and sports. What God wants us to do now is to carve out space in our week to think about something that is actually full of glory regarding these covenants. So first, let's talk about what a covenant is for a moment. You know, to quote um, one of the children's catechisms, it is a solemn agreement made between two or more people. So a covenant is an agreement. It can be made between two individuals. Um, So in usually with a covenant, there are vows that are taken. Um, And when a couple gets married, that couple, uh, that um, uh, man and woman are taking vows of covenant before God, before those who are present. Uh, with each other. These covenants can be individual to individual, like David, who made a covenant uh, with his dear friend and, um, Jonathan. But covenants can also be, be made between nations. They can be made between kings. And um, this becomes the background for these, the covenant that God makes, and he enters into uh, but with, between himself and his people. Indeed, um, the covenant made between God and the Israelites through Moses at Mount Sinai is modeled on the treaties made between great kings and lesser kings within the ancient world. These covenants have come to be known as a suzerain, the great king, vassal, the lesser king, who pretty much has no choice if they want to survive but to agree to the terms, um, a suzerain-vassal treaty. And so we're interested in, in the covenants that are made between God and his people. And just to back up, there are several covenants in the Old Testament that God makes with either individuals or a group of people. You can think of the, the first covenant is the covenant, though that language, is that terminology is not used. But, you know, if it <laughs> sounds like a duck and walks like a duck, it's a duck. Well, that's the way theologians look at God's arrangement with Adam and Eve in the garden. God made an arrangement, a covenant arrangement that had promises. It also had curses. You know, um, uh, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That, that's kind of covenant language. Um, and, and implicitly, the idea, as long as you see that tree of life, that's the promise as long as you maintain your fidelity, your obedience to the commands of the great king, your creator, um, that tree of life stands as the reward before you. God makes a covenant with Noah, um, and then later with Abraham, the great you know covenant with Abraham. but we're going to focus and what Paul, um, Paul is focusing is on this this important this you know this kind of um, this becomes the central covenant um, in the Old Testament, which is the covenant that God makes with the Israelites through Moses at Mount Sinai. Okay? But God will also go on to make a covenant with David concerning his descendants and that there will always be a descendant of David on the throne. Um, and then this leads up then to the new covenant made uh, uh, in and through uh, and with Jesus, uh, with God's uh, New Testament people. Now, in this um, passage, Paul's comparing and contrasting um, the covenant between Moses and the covenant uh, made with and uh, through Christ. And um, one of the fundamental differences um, that I'm just going to kind of introduce between the old covenant made with Moses and the new covenant made with Jesus is that the old covenant, just put it this way, it was breakable. Okay. It was a covenant that the Israelites could break. The new covenant in Christ, and we'll explain this, I'll, I'll come back to explain why this is the case, is a covenant that is ultimately unbreakable. Okay. It, it ultimately, um, the burden is, you, you might think of it as the difference between being conditional. So the old covenant with Moses is a conditional covenant. They broke it. They suffered. The, the curses are triggered. The, the nation dies uh, in exile. Um, it is a conditional covenant. The new covenant has a different underlying principle, and you could refer to it as unbreakable. You could refer to it as un- unconditional. Um, you could think of the difference as a difference between a covenant of works that has to be in some sense earned um, versus a covenant of grace. Now, with the new covenant, it's, its I'll come to it, but there is a works principle, but it's not a works principle that we have the burden that the people, we, us, had the burden to maintain, okay? So this is a fundamental difference between the two covenants. And and this is where Jeremiah's indictment of the old covenant comes from. When he writes in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, Uh, the prophet writes, "'Behold, the days are coming,' declares the Lord. "'When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah,' I take that as prophetic idiom. Is just referring, this is the, the prophet's way of referring to the people of God. Um, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, that is the covenant made with and through Moses, my covenant that they broke, Jeremiah writes, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The Old Covenant was breakable. it was conditional in a fundamental way. The New Covenant has stipulations or commands that we are expected to obey, but at the end of the day, it is ultimately unbreakable. And hopefully as we go on, I'll, I'll hope to show you why that is the case. And that's part of the glory, as part of the glory of this new arrangement, this new relationship um, that God has entered into with us in and through Jesus. And so in 2 Corinthians, um, verses 7 and 8, chapter 3, Paul uh, refers immediately to the Old Covenant as a ministry of death. And he writes, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze um, at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more Glory. In part, to understand what he's doing here is the Apostle Paul is referring back to a very, um, which him, this kind of, this, uh, an episode in the events with Moses that just captured his imagination. And he uses this as an illustration that though there were great limitations with the old covenant, nevertheless, he was glorious. And, and the example he uses as a literal example of the glory of the covenant is the second time, because the first time Moses went up to get the, the Ten Commandments on his way down uh, from the mountain and back to the people, he hears them partying and celebrating as they're dancing around a golden calf. And he immediately throws his ten- you know, he has... <laughs> He just gets so, he goes into a rage and he, and he throws and breaks the, the tablets of stone, and 3,000 people die. I mean, even before he gets back to the people, they've already broken the terms of the covenant. And so Moses goes back um, in order to renew the, this covenant to Sinai, and God gives him a new set of tablets, uh, two new tablets with the Ten Commandments engraved on the tablets of stone. And when he comes back, um, he comes down the mountain back to the people. He doesn't realize it apparently, but his face is radiating the glory of God. And this terrifies, this is terrifying to the people. Um, and so he speaks to them for a, a moment, but then the leaders come to Moses and say, you've got to do something because the people cannot stand to be in your presence with your face radiating. And it, it, apparently it wasn't just light but it was some sense of God's glory, his holy grandeur glory that just made the people deeply uncomfortable because they knew that they were not holy. And so at the end of the day, what Moses ends up doing is he covers his face with a veil in order to shield the people from the glory that is radiating from his face. This is a literal example of the glory of the Old Covenant. But he could have also moved to the the non-literal glory. That is, the law was this glorious demonstration of God's wisdom as, as Israel's true king. Because in the ancient world part of the glory of a great king like Hammurabi, many of you are familiar with the code of Hammurabi, was that the great king could supply his people with a glorious law that would arrange and bring order to the society. And so the law itself, and if you compare, say, the old covenant with Hammurabi's code, the the old covenant, it's so much more, there is so much more wisdom um, in, in the Old Covenant in comparison to the Babylonian code. But with that said is that there was a glory in the presence of this law. And more than this is it was a demonstration. It was a communication of what God's moral nature is like. And so God is revealing himself through the moral codes of the Old Testament law, um, which was also glorious that the Israelites, of all the peoples of the earth, were privileged with the granting of this law. It was glorious to them. They marveled at the law and the wisdom that was found in it because it promoted human flourishing, okay? It promoted human flourishing. And so the point that Paul is making here is this. If this was a real and genuine glory, that there was real glory in the Old Covenant, how much more, he's asking, uh, how much more glory is there attached to the New Covenant as Paul describes it, the ministry of the Spirit in verse 8? And that's an interesting question because when we think of the New Covenant, and if someone say, why is the New Covenant glorious? what would you say? How is the glory of the new covenant revealed to us? And at least what you want to appreciate is the fact that if the old covenant had this glory attached to it, how, and this is just Paul's reasoning here, how much more glorious is the new covenant that has a better mediator, Jesus, with better terms and better promises? And so that's where he begins to lead, is to help us unpack where, how are we to understand and appreciate this glory? And the first answer is this, and, and he runs through like six um, uh, reasons, and we're only going to get through one here. But this may be the foundational piece. The first answer is this, whereas the old covenant brought condemnation, this is point two on your outline, the new covenant brings righteousness. Okay, at the end of the day, this is this is just huge in terms of how these covenants, the limitations of the old covenant, as glorious as it was, um, in comparison with the glory of the new covenant. Now, Paul has already referred to the old covenant as that letter that kills in verse 6. In verse 7, he refers to it as a ministry of death. And in verse 9, we get a little closer to what he means when he refers to the Old Covenant um, as the ministry of, of condemnation. So he's he's continuing to describe what he, he means by the limitation and what how he understands that the Old Covenant actually uh, brought death. It brought a curse. Well, what does he mean? He doesn't mean that the law was somehow evil. He doesn't believe that it was deceptive or that it was corrupt. Indeed, in the letter to the Romans, Paul writes, so the law, referring to the law of Moses, is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Whatever limitations were connected to the Old Testament law, it didn't have to do with the law itself, at least not the moral aspect of the law. The problem here that Paul is speaking of is, is, again, it's not the law itself exactly. Rather, the problem has to do with the human inability to keep the law. And the principle for why there is this human inability is the principle, it's a result of sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is has always been the ultimate problem. Sin is why there's all kinds of challenges and problems and and sickness and sorrow and death in the world. Ultimately, it is human sin, and it flows through every individual human heart. Bottom line. The law, strictly speaking, was a do this and live. Fail to do this and you will die kind of law. It was conditional. It could be broken. And the problem went deeper. Not only was it possible to break the old covenant, here's where it goes deeper. It was impossible to keep it. It was impossible to keep the letter of the law. Now you might be able to keep the law externally, like a Pharisee, like the prayer, you know, we read where the Pharisees look so good on the outside, but Jesus tells them on the inside, you're like a grave. Your spiritual dead bones, that's what's actually happening in your heart. You're just a turmoil of, of lusts and desires and, and, um, and, 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 and sinful uh, problems. And, so, and this is why in, in Philippians 3, 6, Paul can say, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless, Paul says. Well, what does he mean when he says he's blameless? Well, he's blameless because externally he was a great Pharisee. He could follow the letter of the law as well as anybody. He was zealous. He was committed. He was intelligent and he was disciplined. Okay. Externally, he could keep the law. So it's interesting when you go back to Romans and you read this from the Apostle Paul. This is Romans seven. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. When the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. What the apostle is saying is, you know, he got through the first nine commandments of the 10, and he felt like he was doing pretty well. You know, no, nope, I'm not bowing down to any idols. I'm not creating idols. I'm honoring, the, you know, my parents and the Sabbath day. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. He goes through all of them, check, 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 check. He hits number 10, Thou shalt not covet, and it clobbered him. Because the law did not provide the ability to actually keep the law, at least from the level of the heart. And the law exposed the sin of the heart. And for this reason, it was limited. It could not um, prove to be a means of salvation before going on to the new covenant and how the new covenant solves this problem of sin, we have to ask the question, how then were God's people living under the old covenant saved? How were they saved? How how were they redeemed? How, How did they find the grace and the forgiveness and the righteousness they needed to stand in the presence of God? Well, it was never by keeping the law. For this, they could not do not even close. They were saved by the same way that their father Abraham was saved, and in the same way that we are saved, by faith alone, in the Savior that God would send. All along, from the time of Adam and Eve, there has been a grace principle, a a principle of grace running underneath all of these covenants. And this grace principle essentially was this, that if you placed your faith, if you believed in the promises of the coming Savior, and there were um, promises and prophecies, and, and within the old covenant law itself, there was the entire sacrificial system. There were the feasts, especially like Passover, that pointed to the coming. See, animals could never really take away sins. That's what Hebrews tells us. It was limited. And furthermore, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices could not forgive high-handed sins, which I think is in part why David says, you know, if I could offer a sacrifice after he committed um, adultery and had Uriah killed, if I could offer a sacrifice, I would have done it. But he discovers that underneath there's nevertheless a principle of grace demonstrated by a humble and contrite spirit. Well, let's talk about the new covenant. And this brings us to this first point. The New Covenant works in two directions. It's designed in such a way so that the blessings of the covenant are guaranteed and that the principle of divine condemnation is removed. Okay, how? Okay, it works like this. God the Father first makes a covenant. And there are different terms for this. I'm just going to call it the New Covenant. So I'm when I'm thinking of the New Covenant, here's the way I'm understanding it there's a direct covenant that's made, and then there's an indirect covenant. The direct covenant is actually made with Jesus. He's the second Adam. He's the representative for all of his people. So the direct, the covenant is actually made with Jesus. And there's a works principle, just like it was with the covenant of Moses. Jesus has to fulfill all the terms of the covenant, and he has to do so perfectly. He has to obey all the stipulations of the law of Moses as God intended those commandments, and not only does he have to obey god 's moral law, the Mosaic law perfectly, but then in order to um, allow us to be part of this covenant, he also has to pay for our our inability to have kept god 's moral law or you know for Jewish people to have kept the old covenant and so to that end, he has to actively fulfill the righteousness of the law, and he has to passively die as a substitute, as an atoning sacrifice in our place. And so, what Jesus does is he satisfies both of those requirements, both the active righteousness and the passive righteousness, through a righteous life and his death on the cross. And in so doing, God the Father makes this covenant with God the Son, and the terms of the covenant are secured directly in and through Jesus. The terms of the covenant then come to God's people through the followers of Jesus indirectly. As we are in Jesus, we then become recipients of the benefits of, that Jesus has merited. He earned it. He merited uh, the, the, the benefits and the promises of the new covenant. And you can see then, as the key for us then is, here's the key question, are you in Christ? If you are in Christ, all the benefits that Christ has merited become yours the forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God, a future eternal inheritance in God's kingdom, the granting and the clothing of the righteousness we need in an alien righteousness and a righteousness we can't conjure from within that comes from Jesus. We're clothed in that righteousness and it's in that righteousness we can stand with confidence before and in the presence of our holy father and creator king. There's the direct side, and there's the indirect. God makes the new covenant then indirectly with all those who put their faith in Jesus. And so um, in terms of our forgiveness and our uh, redemption, well, how does this happen? Well, just listen to some of these passages. But to all who did receive him, that is receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Second Corinthians, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, key language, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians 1.7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Romans 8.1 one. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So here's the critical question. Are you in Christ? And that's an important question. It's not to be taken for granted. It's not to be answered quickly. And this is where works do come in for the believer. Because if we are in Christ, then here's what this means. It means that the Spirit of God has changed your heart. The Spirit of God has brought your heart, which was previously spiritually dead, and has resurrected it and brought it to spiritual life. And the evidence of that spiritual life is that Jesus now does not seem narrow. He doesn't seem foolish to you. That, in fact, Christ seems that the message of the gospel, um, that he died in our place for the forgiveness of sins, and those who believe will receive eternal life, um, that that message makes eminent sense. That's a sign that the Spirit... Like, you can even feel it now, that the Spirit is at work in your heart. But this is also where works are. So, you know, this is complicated. Works are, in a sense, necessary within the new covenant. Well, what do I mean? They're necessary not to maintain our relationship. That's done by Jesus. But they're necessary to affirm. They're necessary to confirm that we are, in fact, in Christ. Because if you've been changed from a thorn bush to an apple tree, okay, I mean, in a sense, that's what the, we've been made new creation. If that's happened, you should expect to see apples. And if there aren't apples there, you're more than likely self deceived. So um, transformative is the work of the Spirit within our hearts and within our lives. It doesn't mean we're ever perfect. And so there's always, you know, this call to confess. And that's also a demonstration uh, that the Spirit is present. When we feel the conviction of the Spirit, and we're like, oh, Lord, like, you know, the, the, the tax collector, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's an evidence that the Spirit of God resides within us. Let me just apply it this way. The first question here is, have you received the invitation to become a believing member of the new covenant? Have you come to an end of trying to be good enough? And instead, are you ready to trust in the one who is good enough for you? That's the gospel. It's not our being good enough. It's that God has presented one who was good enough. And all we need to do is to place our trust in him for our forgiveness and for eternal life. Of course, there's something to consider in this whole transaction. There is a cost. Well, what is that cost? The cost is your willingness to follow Jesus as your king. The the cost is your willingness to accept the commands of Christ. The cost is to be willing to make him your treasure and to devote all other elements of your life to the priority of following King Jesus. And this will will be a cost. The world, in some respects, will hate you because of your commitment to following Jesus. Following Jesus means that you're not not number one anymore. (laughs) Christ is. And our goal is to um, devote our entire life to allowing Christ to be our king, to be our Lord. Now, maybe you've never made um, this commitment to the Lord, but you're ready. What I'm just gonna do is I'm just gonna close in a word of prayer, and and I don't do this very often, but I'm gonna just pray a prayer that if, if the Lord's working on your heart, and you're like, Lord, I want you to be my savior. I want you to be my king and my Lord. I want to be found in Jesus, to be a privileged member of this new covenant, then I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Would you bow your heads? Lord, I admit I am a sinner. I need and I want your forgiveness. I accept your death as the penalty for my sin, and recognize that your mercy and grace is a gift you offer to me because of your great love, not based on anything I have done. Cleanse me and make me your child. By faith, I receive you into my heart as the son of God and as the savior and Lord of my life. From now on, help me to live for you, with you in control, in your precious name, Amen.